You have big shoes to fill. The Giants came before you. They've written down the blueprint. They've handed it to you. It's up to you to pick it up, to soak it in, to read it, to cultivate it, to perfect it, to master it. This episode of Choices Not Chances podcast is sponsored by Louisiana Gun Shop. Located on Highway 90 West in Broussard, Louisiana, just south of Lafayette. For more information, stay tuned at the end of this episode. This is Choices Not Chances podcast with Ryan and Matt. I'm your co-host, Matthew Charette. Sit next to me is Ryan Rogers. Ryan. Hey guys, welcome back to Choices Not Chances. We've got a good one for you today. And just like every other episode, if you see something that strikes you that you need to get shared out, that needs to be shared with somebody that you know, we ask you just post that back up, tag the show, let us know where we're making changes and what changes we can make uh, in your life. Today I got a good one. Uh, back in, I think it was 2013, 2014 time frame, I had checked into a 14. I had checked into a uh, inpatient treatment facility in uh, San Antonio, Texas called Laurel Ridge, and they help with uh, PTSD and TBI, psychiatric help from guys returning from the war. And they were amazing, uh, but long story short there, uh, I checked in. I met some new people. I met some some guys from the Army. I met some some gals from the you know Army and Navy. And, and is everybody just there trying to get better? I personally was there because I had my second baby on the way. My wife was, you know, set to set to deliver him in like I think two months, two and a half months from when I checked in. And um, you know, we do that uh, prolonged exposure therapy there. And I had never done that. I'd never tried to you know. At that point, I never really even tried to figure out what my issue was or what was, you know, what I was lacking or what I was needing. And so I checked in to get myself right before my second baby came along. And then, you know, being anywhere for 30 days, closely confined uh, with other people, you're going to learn about them. You're going to hear their stories, especially when you're in therapy together. And, you know, not even the th- not not just the therapy that happens in the groups, uh, but then the therapy that happens uh, through music and through camaraderie and through um, you know, uh, shared experience, um, verbally just having a conversation with somebody else can be just as therapeutic as a, as a uh, trip to the shrink's office, uh, in my opinion, in my experience. And so a lot of the therapy I got from Laurel Ridge came from the people that were there to get therapy with me, uh, not from me or for me. And, um, one of those people was Joshua Hearns. Uh, he joins us tonight. We're going to talk about, uh, his career. He came up in the army as an officer, uh, did times uh, controlling tanks uh, and uh, and seen and had different experiences in in uh, GWAT during Iraq campaign, and uh, we're going to talk to him about his time in country, um, his time before country, time in country, catalyst to service, and then we're going to move you know through the interview, kind of catching up on where we left off. We'll get to start, we'll get ourselves to Lower Ridge, and then we'll uh, transition to you know, lessons learned and things that he went through, experienced and thrived through uh, during his transition and, and, and getting back to a uh, a righteous spot. So, Josh Hearns, thanks for coming to the show, brother. Right on, man. Glad to be here. Super Absolutely. glad. Absolutely, man. Well, if you've seen any of my shows, you know where I'm going to go first. I'm going to go to childhood. Uh, I like to understand where people come from, uh, to, to, to analyze where people come from and uh, what experiences they had as a kid uh, growing up what was in their lives, brothers, sisters, religion. I like to understand that small part, not small part. I think it's maybe the biggest part, right? That zero to 12 years old, where do we form what we want to be 
And uh, so let's get into it. Man, that is loaded. That is really <laughs> loaded. We'll maybe back to therapy on this one because uh, <laughs> that's a pretty. I think at age forty-three and everything I've been through, I think that I can accredit most of who I am to my childhood, good, bad, or indifferent. Most of it bad and indifferent. But um, yeah, man, I was born in Atlanta, Georgia. I come from a really old Southern family. I actually lived in the old plantation house that had been in my family since the 1800s on my dad's side, which they're riddled with problems, right? I'm actually estranged from all of them now. My dad died actually not long after I left Texas when you and I first met. Um, and that was actually a very traumatic moment for me. And um, very life altering moment. Now on the other side is my mom's family who they're all saints, right? Like my granddad on that side, he was a Marine in world war two in the Pelua campaign, uh, Pelua, excuse me, Pelua, yeah. and, um, uh, came, got out and had his own um, traumatic stuff that he went through and his journey took him into a ministry and he became mm. a Methodist uh, minister after, after the world war two. And, um, those are really good people. They're, they're like angels. So I've got the angels on my mom's side and the devil's on my dad's side. And, um, my, my parents split when I was very young, my dad, uh, a lot of substance abuse, um, very narcissistic guy, a lot of childhood trauma there that I've probably never told anybody about. So this is kind of a big moment to me to sit here and talk about this a little bit. But, um, can you get, can you go deeper trauma. into that? Was it like, because of alcohol use, there was other things or, or you know abusive nature or was it other things in general oh it was other things i've kind of learned my grandmother was a little crazy um there was a lot of my granddad was a really bad alcoholic as well um a lot of bad stuff there to be honest a lot of a lot to unpackage there but it spilled over into my childhood there were a lot of my parents split when i was pretty young i remember my dad kind of stalking us, kicking in some doors, abusing my mom a little bit until my stepdad came along. Um, he was a Vietnam vet, right? He was a doctor. He was a dentist uh, and had been in the Navy during Vietnam um, and kind of put an end to all that, right? Like he kind of stood up and uh, kind of became the protector and then my stepfather slash kind of father figure after that. But we moved up to Michigan and got away from all that. And so my childhood was kind of split between excuse me, um, like this Midwest Michigan childhood and then coming down in the summers and Christmas in Georgia with that side of the family. So like I'm very fluid in dialects and mm. uh, been around a little bit, but um, yeah. Um, so yeah, there was kind of a rough childhood there for a little while. Um, and, you know, it affected me growing up with grades and everything else and just kind of trying to fit in a little bit changed schools a lot, um, moved around a lot. And then it wasn't, you know, I, I stabilized kind of in high school. I went to the mm. same high school all four years. And that was when I really, I kind of looked at the military as a, an escape my whole life. It was a way to, you know, kind of get out there and escape the, the trauma that I had and, you know, see the world. And you know, I just thought it was cool growing up. I was always the kid that played GI Joe and everything else. Um, yeah, that, that was kind of my childhood. Yeah, and only child, or you had brothers and sisters? I've got a sister. I've got a. She was sixteen months younger than me. Yeah, okay. so uh, we were kind of close growing up. She was always a great behind me, and uh, kind of my partner in crime, so to speak. Good, good. And so, coming from that environment, 
you join the army. What is the catalyst to the service there? Is the catalyst, let's just get the hell out of here and go see different things or? So in high school, yeah, right? Like I just wanted to get away. I wanted to join the Marine Corps. So here's my funny, I almost joined the Marines. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Everybody's got that almost joined, right? So I, I could tell it because I went on and I became an army officer, right? So I'm yeah, not yeah. that guy. Like, well, I almost did something, but even though I almost became a Marine, so. Uh, um, it was uh it was spring break my junior year in high school i'm like i'm gonna join the marine corps my mom's like what are you doing don't do that finish high school first of all go to college like you can always go in afterwards right she's just being a normal mom right Mm -hmm. um and so my i had an aunt she invited me out to washington i had an uncle that he had he had commissioned through rotc back in the day and uh, so he kind of talked to me, took me to some ROTC unit out there. And uh, I think somewhere, I can't even remember the university in Washington. Mm-hmm. And um, anyways, I came back and uh, we were getting ready to sign. So the recruiter and his buddy came over. They were in their dress uniforms. We were going to do it at my grandmother's house, right? The signing and the ceremony. And right before we did it, my mom like stopped. She's like, will you please come in the back room and talk to me for a second? And I'm like, yeah, of course. Right. So she begs me not to do this. She's like, please just go to college. You can always go in after you graduate, just graduate high school. You still got a whole year to go. You don't even know if you want to be a Marine next year. And uh, so I went back, I told a recruiter, I'm like, Hey, you know what? Let's put this on hold for a minute. Right. So he's like, well, Damn. can I talk to you for a second? <laughs> you know, I go back in the bathroom with him and he lights me up. He's like, you're not going to back out. Are you scared? Are you, you know, he's just like going in <laughs> trying to get my, my pride. You know, he's like, we got all dressed up. I got my buddy over here. We're in these uniforms. You're going to go in there and you're going to sign this piece of paper. And I'm, I just was like, no, nah, man, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, almost he was so mad. Oh my God. He was mad. Him and his buddy left. I never talked to him again. <laughs> <laughs> So, anyways, I went on, like, I kind of became uh, a hippie, so to speak, yeah. right, in my senior year. I started going to concerts and started kind of coming of age a little bit, right? Because I yeah. guess, you know, moving around, you know, I never had a friend group. And finally, in high school, I stabilized a little bit. And it took a while to grow, right? We all grow in high school. And I finally started coming out of my shell a little bit, started partying, and I ended up going to college, joined a fraternity. I was Mr. Man on the campus, you know, just <laughs> having a good time. I uh, had long hair, long beard. I was following jam bands around. I've been to like almost a hundred widespread panic shows, you know. <laughs> um uh 9-11 happened, right? And uh I just remember sitting here and I'm like, it's go time, right? Like I always wanted to be in the military you know my grandfather who was a role model of mine on my mom's side you know the marine he had joined the marine corps following uh pearl harbor hmm. like well this is my generational time to do that right so i shaved my beard my long hair off and i went out and i started talking to the army i went to the army recruiter he's like dude you're gonna drop out of college we're gonna send you to basic training you're gonna go in you're gonna be a private you're gonna go fight and i'm like yeah man cool dude that's that's what i was kind of thinking about doing you know and then I went and talked to the ROTC guy, right? Yeah, yeah. He's like, screw that guy. He's an idiot. You know, come join ROTC. We'll send you to basic training this summer. You'll come back. You'll be a cadet. We'll give you a scholarship, pay. You'll go in, you know, here in two years. You'll be an officer. You'll be a leader. And I'm like, well, that's a much better deal, right? Yeah, so, yeah. So I took that route. Check. And so um, <laughs> how did your mom feel? Was she just feeling better about you being an officer and at least getting your degree and, and things like that before going in? 
yeah, she knew it was always going to happen, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, and that yeah. was the weird thing because once I had kind of backed out of the Marine Corps and gone into like this college frat boy mode, right? Like I'd stopped thinking about the military so much. And then when 9-11 happened, I just went out and joined. Yeah, called to and you, huh? Everybody was just like, yeah, we figured you would. <laughs> yeah. I was surprised. And that was the craziest thing. Like, even in my 20 year high school reunion, I went back and people I hadn't seen since high school were like, yeah, we always figured you'd join. I'm like, oh, okay. That was just your, that that was your uh, archetype. Yeah. 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 From the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Now, did, what was your, what was your father's side uh, think about you going in and, 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 and serving? Uh, they didn't want me to. Okay. Yeah, you know, they were a little bit different. My grandfather on that side, who was a good guy, right? Like he had some, he had some problems, some alcohol problems, but you know, he had served in the air force during, uh, what was the army air corps back then? Um, in the, uh, um, Korean war times. Was it still the army air corps or was it the air force back then? I'm, I don't know. Don't let me get my facts R- mixed up. Right in between. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, a, uh, don't call me a liar. Can you look that up? I'm looking it up. Yeah. yeah I'm going to say the air force. I'm pretty sure it was the Air Force. Yeah, kind of a mute point, but he was in for a little bit during that point. But that was kind of the only service. And then my dad, who again grew up on all this land on this old plantation, he loved to play army, right? Like he loved to have you know all his guns and everything, and wanted mm-hmm. to talk about all that. You know, he never joined, and he wasn't necessarily excited about me doing it either, right? But no, yeah, I guess yeah. that's right. You know, you don't want to see your kid go off to combat, but. Yeah, I mean, he was really not. Nineteen forty-seven changed. Um, okay, so it would have been the Air Force then. Air Force then, yeah, yeah. I I hear you on that, and like, you know, I have a boy now, and everything I do is still war fighting from the books that I write to my platform, and there, you know, it's going to be. I'm going to have to atone for that. He's raised by. <laughs> my friends and a lot of them are war heroes that are over here all the time. I mean, decorated dudes. And, and so like, I'm just trying to like, trying to make it right in my mind at this point right now that, Hey, this may come. So I I'm classically conditioning him to want to be an officer, have his degree. I'm like your dad and your, all your uncles did the enlisted thing. You don't, you ain't doing the enlisted thing. So you go be a PC. That's fine with me. But, um, but maybe not. I also tell him, you know, if you want to build video games for the rest of your life, there's ways to make money doing that too. So you do what you want to do. You know, you don't have to follow me, but I just see that. I see that in him. So his mom sees it too. She flips out. Same with my son, right? Like he's, he's 11 now, you know, and he's asking me a lot of questions about military stuff. He'll come in here and look at this wall every oh, once yeah. in a while. And at one point about a year ago, I looked at him and I was like, son, I, I want you to know that there's no obligation or expectation for you to go in the military, right? Like, yeah. I know I did, you know, there's some, you know, long line of military in my family, you know, short of my dad. And I was like, so what? Yep. You, know, you yep. don't have to, if you do, you do, right? And like you said, right? Like if I want, I like to think that with my experience and what I learned, I want to pass that down to my kids, right? Mm-hmm. Like you said, go in get the higher paying job mm-hmm. feel some need like you've got to like go get shot at to prove you're a man or anything right you don't air force like be a cook or something like i don't care like just fly a jet fly a helicopter do, do something different than what i did <laughs> yeah, 
right. Let me yeah. live vicariously through you as a pilot. But yeah, the whole the whole trudging through the mud on your feet is it's fun. Don't get me wrong; I had a great time. But you got to really want that uh, yeah. and, be, and be committed, you know. And then the other side of it, as a parent, and I'm I do my best to stay apolitical on this show. I'm not trying to bait you into a conversation you don't want to have. But as a parent, I look at this place and. And I'm watching the entire world in chaos and a government who I don't know if they respect a warfighter enough to even give them my my blessing to say you could take my son and put him to work. Like I used to. I used to believe. Um, and now it's things are crazy. And it's not it's not like a, it's not even a, you know, maybe it's attached to politics, but it's not even political. It's all over the entire world. The entire world is in chaos. And, uh, you know, I at least want to know that you are going to support and resource my child enough to fight the war for you. And, and, you know, uh, it's just crazy, crazy, crazy. Um, so uh, moving on, go ahead. Sorry. Oh no, I was just saying, bro, I totally agree with everything you just said. Yeah. Yeah. It's just wild. Um, so moving on from there, uh, nine 11 strikes a catalyst in you. Everybody knows you're going to go in. Finally, the reserve officer training recruiter, uh, hooks you up and says, this is what's up. So, so is that what you do? Do you go off to boot camp and then come back, finish the degree? Yeah. So, um, starting that second semester of that year, which would have been around, you know, Christmas, the first of Oh two, right? Like I started ROTC classes and then that summer I went to their version of basic training at Fort Knox, graduated top of my class and actually got an airborne slot. So I went straight from Fort Knox down to Fort Benny. I wasn't even in the army, right? This, this is kind of another funny story, right? I went to airborne school. I went back to my college, right? And he's like, oh, you got top of the class, you know, everything else. He's like, what do you want? I'm like, I want to go to airborne school. So he calls at the local National Guard unit. They had a slot. He gets the slot and sends me. I wasn't even, I didn't even have an ID card. You weren't even right? insured. Like, <laughs> I was just an ROTC cadet that wasn't even under contract with ROTC. So they print me out some orders and I had to keep the orders in my pocket the whole time. And I go down <laughs> to the airborne school. Like I barely had just learned how to march, you know, and I'm down there <laughs> jumping out of planes. I think everybody thought I was a spook, right? Cause this was like summer. <laughs> we had a, tapes, like nothing. most of the cadre had just come back from Afghanistan. <laughs> they were all like Ranger guys that mm. had jumped in and then came over to be instructors over at the airborne school. And you had a bunch of, civilians that were there as well you know yeah um, yeah it was really kind of a weird time but uh it was a lot of fun yeah. so yeah once I did that i came back and then i contracted with rotc for the first you know the fall semester of o2 and then went in from there and did two years check and and so what um what'd you come in as when you did come in when you commissioned second lieutenant no no i meant uh uh job wise occupation wise oh 19 alpha armor officer Okay. Yeah, and so can... my first job uh, was a tank platoon leader. I was a, a tank platoon leader with the 1st Infantry Division out of Schweinfurt, Germany. 1st uh, oh. Battalion, 77th Armor. 1st Battalion, 77th Armor. That's like that dope. Can you, can you go into, um, like, I want to know, like, your emotions, sensations, feelings coming into the new unit, checking in and knowing that now you're in charge of these guys and this equipment because a lot of times like heavy is the head right that can be overwhelming on your first on your first second third fourth fifth no matter how many times you do it it can be overwhelming i tell you what and you're right right like i'm 43 now i'm a corporate manager like i run a big territory i do all kinds of hiring and disciplinary stuff like i mean 
I think back to when I was, shoot, how old was I then? Um, 25, right? Fresh out of school. I got, I just shaved my beard and hair off, you know, to join the army. And um, so, you know, and they prep you for that, right? Like, you know, going in as an officer, the, you know, ROTC is trained to make you basically a squad leader, right? Like that's mm -hmm. all you train, squad tactics and how to be a leader. And that's all anybody talks to you about is like, hey, you're about to go stand in front of grown men, particularly a platoon sergeant and some staff sergeants who have been there for a while and know what they're talking about. And you're going to have to be their boss. Right. And it's yeah. not only you're going to have to be proficient technically um, in, in what you're doing in your craft, but you've got to be strong enough as a human being to stand in front of these, you know, just all men back then and tell them what to do without being yeah. intimidated right because some yeah. of them are intimidating you know that and they yeah. love to give crap all the time right and so i mean it's it's super scary right like you've got two years in rotc like training 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 for this and i'm like all right good i keep graduating you know i keep getting top knocks you know on everything you know so i feel like i'm good i got my first choice of duty station you know uh which was germany i got my first choice of branch which was armor i'm like man i'm, I'm like i'm kicking butt here you know and then um, I went to, I graduated college in the summer of 04 and I went to Fort Knox again for what was called armor officer basic course back mm -hmm. then. I think I still call it Bullock now. Um, but yeah, it was all just lieutenants that were armor and cavalry. And uh, again, you know, that's where you're really learning how to be a platoon leader for the first time. And it's the same kind of talk, like all the sergeants first class that are there and staff sergeants that are, you know, part of the cadre training, you're telling you the same thing, like, mm -hmm better know what you're talking about when you stand up in front of these guys because you're about to send them you know into combat right because we were in combat you know at the time i mean by that time that was oh four we were yeah. already in that in iraq right so you knew you were going into the den you know the lines then at that point and so yeah i went overseas i had about say i got there i got there valentine's day of oh five and i think i took I think it was about six or seven months that I was on like HHC as a little staff officer, just waiting my turn to come up before I could go take my platoon. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just the excitement, the anticipation of it. And finally you go down there and you're standing in front of these guys and you're like the leader, you know, and look, man, that was like 20 years ago now. Right. Like I, I want to sit here and say, Oh, I felt confident and strong. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I them all to do. And they all respected and loved me and all that, you know, like I'm sure like, it was, it was nerve wracking. Right. Yeah. Like, I got very lucky though, and like most of us do, right? Because the army and the military, the Marine Corps, are really full of great people, right? Oh, yeah. like, there's microcosm of the greatest people in the nation. Absolutely, you know, you get your occasional jerk in there and all that, but I mean, at least at least they're disciplined too. So um, now I had great human beings, great just war fighters, you know, in my platoon back then. I had a great uh, platoon sergeant. He had just PC uh, PCS there from another unit and. Uh, him and I were a good team, you know, and led yeah. those guys through uh, the train up to go to Iraq. And then I went through that whole train up. And then uh, right before we deployed, I moved up to be an XO in another company. So got them all ready to go. And then they switched it up. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, at least they're ready to go for whoever takes them over, you know, and that's yeah. what, that's, what's beautiful about the way our organizations work is you, that's what it is. You get, you make it, you know, leave it better than what you found it because it's still people's flesh on the line. If you, if you look at it that way. So, um, and that's the way it should be looked at. Um, so I want to segue, I want to, I want to, I want to detract from our chronological order or not maybe, but, um, before we go forward and get into Iraq and, um, and some of the XO time, 
When did music become a part of your life? I was guessing it as a child, but it, was it college? Always. Always. Oh, I, I've always, um, can y'all hear that beeping by chance? I hear nothing. Sorry. All right. That's my computer. Then. <laughs> uh, it's like super loud in my ear. Sorry. Um, man, I've always just been a music guy, right? Like I've just loved music. Um, I just always like I was a big Guns N' Roses fan as like a middle schooler, you know, and um, so I begged my mom, begged her for years to get me guitar lessons. And finally she did like my junior year of high school. Right. And uh, it just took the guy. He taught me like three chords and I'm like, oh, that's easy. Right. And so I started picking it up and I taught myself how to play. And then I went on to college, you know, and you got a lot of time sitting in college, you know, sitting around dorm rooms your first couple mm -hmm. of years houses and all that and so i started playing more and more and more and i got like really sharp at it um so i go through these waves with music right where i'll play and i get really good and i'll learn some new songs and i'm just rocking out and then i'll set them down for like two years <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so have those been down for two years is that what you're saying yeah it's been it's been a while since I've really played. Um, I was going to tell you to pick one up and, and riff one off, but if it's been two oh, years, yeah, I won't put you on the spot. You just have to go look at my YouTube where I played some really good a few years ago and recorded them for eternity. Yeah, I'll bring it in. I'll bring it in. Um, no, that's awesome. That's one of the things when we were in Lower Ridge, man, that's that's one of the parts of the day I look forward to is just going in there and jamming. You know, there's something about music. It's medicinal. It's like waves or jungle birds. I don't know. It does something. The frequency. I don't know. There's something about it, though. Music moves people. So moves it's always people. been therapeutic for me as well, man. It, it really has. It uh, it just like you said, man. It just it moves you. It gets in me. It's um, and then particularly like at Laurel Ridge, right? It was super therapeutic. It mm. gave me something to do with my mind and my hands and some flow and some purpose. And I think it's always kind of been like that. And I found like if I get really stressed or, you know, I got a lot of going on or man, I just, my head, I'm in my head. Right. Mm -hmm. I know I can sit down and grab that guitar and just start strumming some chords and it'll wash away. Even if just for 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love it. I love it. So music from a young age. Okay. We'll go back. I just had to know that I knew that, uh, I knew that it was at some point before I met you and I didn't know when that point was. So, um, so right on. And I think Laurel Ridge was one of those two year marks, right? Where I was like, "Oh man, it's been two years since I played guitar." And I got, <laughs> uh, I got the therapist there. She got her boyfriend. That's right. Actually, the guitar, yeah. and I sat there and picked that. I remember picking those songs with you. That was a lot of fun, man. That was great, dude. Great times, great memories. Uh, even in in a, in a situation where you wouldn't expect that you would go and meet, you know, friends that you're gonna talk to 10, 15 years later and, and reminisce. So, um, good times there. All right. Take me to, uh, actually before we move on to XO time, I, I want to dive more into the workup with your guys. Like there's platoon, uh, commanders and new guys coming into the army all the time. This video is going to be out there forever or, you know, arguably forever. Um, you know, what would, let, give me, give me your three, three to five, you know, of your biggest learning points and lessons from, from being, a, you know, a platoon leader in the army, in the, in the armored, uh, tank, uh, unit. Oh man, you're going to ask me trick questions. I know I should have write stuff. Down. <laughs> <laughs> Just give me, give me some of the, 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 the finer points or the learning points, um, that you wish you would have known, or somebody would have told you about being a leader, um, in the army. Let's, let's, let's plan it out like that. <laughs> 
Well, I feel like I feel like all the training did a really good job of preparing me, mm-hmm. to be honest. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I don't think there were really any surprises. Um, I, I think we're, you know, the one way that the army kind of fell a little bit short was all the administrative stuff, right? Like you spend so much time, you know, how to conduct small, small unit movement, you know, maneuver, fire and maneuver, right? You learn how to particularly going into be an officer, right? Like, you know, ROTC is solely trained on making you like a proficient squad leader, you know, infantry squad leader, right? And that's how they grade you and, you know, base everything. That's the foundation of learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, same for a bullock, right? You go in there, you learn how to shoot tanks, you learn how to maneuver tanks, you learn how to, you know, command and control, fire control maneuver or measures and all that stuff. But you don't really learn the administrative part, which takes up 90% yeah. of your time. Right? Yeah. Like, it's super cool to go out there and shoot guns and maneuver and lead and tell people to put the fires on targets, right? What's not cool is like, what's the government travel system? Um, what's that called? I can't even remember the name of Star? it anymore. It's for- GSA. Something like that. Then you don't learn that stuff. You're like, it takes up 10 minutes just to figure out, you know, like how to put in certain requests. You know, you don't learn, you know, the hours that's spent, you know, doing article 15s and investigation, stuff like that, which that stuff was actually a lot of fun. I enjoyed that. They did a little bit of training on that, but you know, you get what I'm saying. Some of the administrative tasks that just take forever, maintenance and how to record all of them, prep all of it. And it was, those parts weren't necessarily fun. Um, yeah. You know, like for a young leader, I mean, I, you, you got to just show up and you, you got to be a leader. And I think one thing that I have learned, even that I'm still learning, to be fair, that I'm still learning is that selfless service. And I think, you know, I, you know I'm kind of hard on myself a lot. You know, I made a lot of mistakes, I think. You know, I, I certainly remember every mistake I made. I beat myself up for it. But I think a lot where at times where I really fell short of my own expectations is where maybe I was a little selfish. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we can all be selfish. We're human. I'm human. And I've really learned, especially as of late, what that selfless service looks like, you know, to where to be of true service like to, to true service to to somebody or an organization to where you know i i think there were times where i thought a little bit more about myself maybe held back because i didn't want to get my feet too dirty or i didn't want to expose myself too much or something like that and it just you know probably some mistakes i made in that in that realm and i think as i'm learning now just how to be of service to the community and to everybody else. And back then, you know, as a soldier, just making sure that you're fully dedicated to your unit, that mm-hmm. you're out there. It's all about them. And if you make it all about them, 100% about them, they'll give it back to you. Yeah. Give it back to you and you'll be safe. Yeah. You'll be, you'll have everything. You give it all away and you'll get it all right back. You know, that's right. I think there was times when if I held 10% back, I, you know, I was ex- that was my mistake. You know, yeah. I never got that back from the guys at times. And I can't really give a good example on that, but just kind of off the top of my head and some of the lessons I've learned as I've got older is, and that's important. And, you know, the military instills that in you, especially as leaders, right. You know, yeah. and it's that, you know, as an officer, right. For example, letting your guys eat before you, right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, and Hey, if you don't have anything left when it's all done, guess what? You're eating an MRE, but that's all right. You know, your guys see that they see that. 
you know, and they respect that. And they'll give it back to you, especially when it counts. Yeah, I totally agree. They have a, we have a saying in the Marine Corps, you know, we get fitness reports to, to determine, you know, how fit we are to continue being a leader. And that's the grading system in which we go against our peers to go up. And, you know, one of the, one of the perfect or, or beautiful things that I always heard in the Marine Corps uh, from good leaders was that your Marines will write your fit rep. You don't have to worry about your fit rep. You stay committed and do what you're supposed to do for them. They'll write your fit rep all over. Your squad will excel. Your platoon will excel. And when your platoon's excelling, people are seeing, hey, they know what they're doing down there. And then when your guys get asked about you and and your name is revered from them, not because you wear a rank and you yell real loud, but because you had their back. And that is, you know, you can't you can't uh, bottle that up and sell it. That's leadership. That's true leadership. And uh, yeah, leadership. let your let your people write your fit rep. And honestly, that transfers to any organization on the planet, business. You know, anywhere you go, if you care about your team, you make sure you resource your team, support your team, mentor and guide your team your team will put out and they won't put out because they have to, they'll put out because they want to. And, uh, and, and that's the goal, uh, in any, uh, team setting. So, uh, as a leader, I found in corporate America, you can really win if you apply that because they do not instill that in corporate no, America no. at all. It's very self-centered. It is very about you. It's very cutthroat. And I've learned, so when I got out of the Army, I went on, I worked in the railroad as a railroad manager. They picked me up right away. And I stayed with them for a couple of years till they mm. went through a hospital takeover. And it was just, oh, it was just kind of weird, long hours, it was a very hostile work environment. So I got picked up by the company I'm currently at now, but, and that's why I left them. But, you know, especially working around union guys, you know, mm. going in there, manager on the railroad where you have, you know, you're pitted against the union all the time. But if you go in there and show those guys that, you're on their side. I mean, it's a little, you got to balance that union stuff a little bit too, mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. Um, you know, even now as a, as a corporate, you know, as a regional manager in a, in a home improvement sales organization, you know, I build teams all over the country and, you know, I have peers that just are very self, you know, selfish about themselves and they'll go into, you know, offices and just not really build teams or mm-hmm. not really of service and, and it, it comes back on them, you know, and I, I That's feel true. like sometimes I excel by, by actually, you know, being part of that team and, and giving to everybody and, and just showing that I'm there for them. And I tell all my teams that I'm like, look, I might be the boss, but I work for you. If you fail, I fail. I'm here to give you the resources that you need to be successful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the motto I live by. Yeah, it's beautiful. And that's the way it should be. And, uh, and you've hit on it several times, so I'm not going to beat it to death, but that selfless acts and selfless service, when you give fully and you commit fully to where it's like, I, I'm not worried about what somebody's given me back for this. This is the right thing. This is going to help growth. This is going to help the company. And you give it, like you said, dude, I, it just comes back, you know, it comes back. Um, all right. So <clears throat> we kind of jumped forward to the railroad there. Um, I do want to get into some of your XO time though, and talk about that Iraq deployment a bit. Um, so, you know, just to get back on track, you've come in Germany, work up, got the guys worked up, and then boom, you're going to take over an XO position before you guys push. Yeah, we went to uh, we went to Iraq. I actually took over being the XO of uh, Alpha Company One Seven Seven Armor uh, in Kuwait at Camp Uring. Moved over there uh, with those guys. And, uh, you know, at the time it was hard because the platoon I was with, 
they went with another task force. They were with uh, Task Force One Two Six Infantry. Oh, uh, that was for the same unit. McGinnis was in. They got the um, Medal of Honor actually, and so they went up uh, to Baghdad with them a little early, and I had to stay in Kuwait with uh, with the the rest of the main body of yeah. you know my own battalion there. And so I was a little upset about that at first, right? And that was yeah. just kind of get back at it right now. But then I went over to uh, Alpha One Seven Seven to be an XO another great group of human beings you know that i'm you know and i'm super glad about that now because i would have never met all these guys sure. i'm still great for um and yeah i got to kind of got was with them just long enough to kind of meet a few of the personalities before we pushed north into iraq i think we was 19 october 2006 is when we flew into uh flew into bob falcon baghdad with that unit there yeah. and so we were a tank company, but we were an old legacy brigade. And so the army task organizes and with these legacy brigades, basically, you know, we kept a tank platoon, we gave two platoons away. And then, uh, well, first of all, let me back up. We detached as a company and went over with 118 infantry. So I was with task force 118 infantry. We gave up two tank platoons to them and they gave us two infantry platoons in return. Um, and so we were a mech infantry team out of, uh, Fob Falcon. Um, our first job there, uh, we, uh, we had OP San Juan, which was this little, it was a hunting lodge for Saddam Hussein. It was south of a uh, airport and it had like this little, it was about three story tower and like this, I can't remember how many cars, like 20 car garage. And mm. uh, it was a lodge that he had where he'd bring dignitaries up and they'd go to the top of the tower and they would release animals and shoot them in this big field. Anyways, we took it over, excuse me. Um, the army did. And, um, we went in there and used it as a, uh, to uh, surface the air missiles to kind of guard the southern flank of uh, Biop there. So that was our first mission. It was actually pretty quiet there for the most part. Um, and then as the sectarian violence kicked off and the surge was coming into play, we went out and built a, uh, a combat outpost in the city at that point. Oh, Cop Norris. Cop Norris. Gotcha. And, and so what's that look like? What's that day-to-day -day look like? Man, so... Yeah, it was it was a lot of patrolling. You know, it was weird at first. At first, we didn't think we were going to deploy, right? So I almost thought I wasn't even going to get to go to Iraq because uh, we were all set to go in like June of 06. And we were getting ready. And then they, this was when the war was ending. Remember, Bush landed on the aircraft carrier and like it's over and we're going to draw down. And so they delayed our deployment indefinitely. And so we're like, well, what do we do with our hands? You know, yeah, yeah. Training, you know? and so uh, our brigade commander was like, well, let's go back training. So we put all of our tanks and all of our equipment on rails and shipped it all to Grafenbeer to start training again. Cause mm -hmm. it was that time. If we're not going to Iraq, it's time to do gunnery. So we get there and I think it was like a week into it. They're like, whoop, never mind, You're going right. Because that was <laughs> when all the violence was kicking off and they're yeah. like, Ooh, maybe the war is not over. So like, yeah. we put all, our stuff back on trains get it back to Schweinfurt. the platoon that i was a platoon leader with ended up going and leaving straight from there going to kuwait by themselves um with 126 infantry i was stuck back with uh like for a week or two with my uh, parent battalion you know mm -hmm. right when the train was on and then went to kuwait um uh, and then fell in that's where i fell in on one uh, alpha 177 but yeah so it was like we thought we weren't going to go then it was like all of a sudden go go now right sectarian violence is kicking off hmm. so when we got to iraq it was um 
it wasn't overly exciting at, at the moment, right? Like things in Ramadi had, had been kind of stirred up, um, but they were just at the point, I think, where they were kind of quieting down a little bit over there. My parent battalion went to Ramadi. Um, they were over there, 177. I know they worked a lot with the Marines. And then, you know, I was with Alpha 177 and we went with 118 Infantry. And we were just kind of conducting patrols. You know, we had about three platoons at the time. And it was just really like this eight hour patrol cycle, right? You know, just um, wasn't a lot of action at the time. I remember like the first contact we really came in, uh, short of some IEDs, right? Um, but as a company, like, I, think, I remember some dude stepped out behind one of our tanks. Uh, it was like the platoon sergeant's tank and like dumped an AK man at it, right? <laughs> it like maybe chipped some of the cart paint or something on it. But yeah. It was like, oh, that's like, the first action like we really kind of had and it slowly started picking up a little bit right you know as we started getting um kind of towards the surge yeah there. yeah at, at first it was a lot of uh just patrols right just um and then as it started getting a little bit more violent um as a battalion we had about one-fifth of baghdad right we had yeah. like almost all of west rashid when we got there it was this huge huge footprint you know for a battalion right it was crazy uh when the surge hit they put an entire brigade in that area yeah right yeah so it was a lot more combat power there um by the time the surge hit and thank goodness right because you had the spring yeah, it got bad. which was really the height of the iraq war um there was no way we would have been able to control that area not with a battalion <laughs> things are starting to heat back up and can you dive into that a little bit why they're heating back up yeah, we, uh, yeah, you know, that was around, well, it's late 06, early 07, you know, you had the spring offensive of 07, but that was really where we, Petraeus came in and we were, you know, he, his whole idea was to, the whole coin, right? Like it was get out there, get off the fobs, get into the city, you know, start interacting with the populace. Mm -hmm. Like we're never going to win if we just sit on these big fobs and conduct combat patrols, right? Like, and so, um, that was around the time we shut down our uh, our OP San Juan there at uh, at Biop and then went and started opening up uh, Fob Falcon, which was about the time I went on R and R. I went back to Germany and uh, that was when I proposed to my wife. I spent my R and R over there, and things were really kind of picking up. Like the week before I went on R and R was probably my first big firefight that I was in. Right, I was in a couple little skirmishes, awesome firefight. You know, I was kind of on in some little fights, but it was a big one where I had a big role in it. It's actually a video on YouTube of me like running over a car. I'd shot up and stuff that I found later on. But, uh, <laughs> well, can you talk so about that I, for a little bit? Uh, how that, can you talk about that for a little bit, how that came to be or like, we'll get to the R and R, uh, but, but so what was that? What was the mission and such? The mission really was just to go up to this police station, uh, with the commander and talk to uh, some Iraqi national police. That was it, right? So we had this ad hoc crew. He was in a gun truck and he had uh, his headquarters guys in there. We had another gun truck. Um, at that time, we had the mortar platoon attached to us and they weren't shooting mortars, right? So they were just motorized infantry basically. And, um, and then I had my tank and I was only running a three man crew. I was just kind of there just to have some armor to ride around and escort the commander around. So he's in the, He's in the police station. We're on the north end of, uh, well, the north end of our territory, which was probably just a little bit south of Route Irish there, kind mm -hmm. of between the Green Zone and Biop. 
Um, I could probably look up. I'm like, I know exactly on a map where the police station is, but I can't think off the top of my head how to pronounce yeah. it. But uh, <laughs> anyways, like I get the, like, they call me. They're like, hey, we're watching these guys shoot mortars up on a biop right now. You're the only show in town. You got to go. We got helicopters coming on station right now to engage them. And you're going to go in. And I'm like, oh, my God. Right. So I get out my dismount. I run in there. I find my commander. I'm like, we got to go now. Right. So as I'm remounting my tank, I see the choppers up there. I've got my headset on. I'm getting ready to get back in. And they're like, they're like, hey, we're engaging. And I watch them, you know, hit them with their little 30 mic mic little 30 mic mic yeah. and uh, kind of like really cool right so we go and i'm leading and uh they're walking me on and we come out in like this big giant courtyard um over there and uh around some buildings and everything and it was um they had engaged a group let me fix my mic here they had engaged a group that were shooting mortars out of the back of some cars and you know how those 30 mic mics are, right? There was some collateral damage. So my first thing, I remember coming through that gateway in that open area and this old man in a white um, white garb, right? Came running up to my tank, carrying a small uh, female child, right? Um, mm -hmm. And he was covered in blood and blood running all down her. She had been hit by shrapnel um, off the, uh, you know, exploding rounds from the Apache. And, um, I was like one of the first kind of things I had seen like that. Right. Mm -hmm. do, right. Don't do anything. I'm in a tank. <laughs> I'm, I'm roll right past them. Right. I'm moving to contact because I can see the car that they engaged, you know, about a hundred meters in front of me smoking, you know, with some dudes kind of laying around it. And so I move on to it. Um, and then, you know, the commander and his truck come up at that point, I kind of pull into an overwatch position. Cause again, I'm in a three man crew tank at that point. So I'm overwatching them. And then, um, as that's going on, they're getting a report that another car from the scene is trying to leave and mm -hmm. they want us to chase. I'm like, who's us? <laughs> I got two trucks. Everybody's dismounted, pulling bodies out of this car over there. I'm sitting here in a tank. Crowds are gathering, like a bunch of military age mills are gathering, right? Because they're all their buddies that are sitting there now, like in shock. And so he's walking me and I start chasing this car. There's, I got some pictures of it too. This is the one that's on YouTube. And I'm like three blocks in the middle of the city in, in the neighborhood is called Jihad, right? <sighs> and I'm like, I'm in like a tanker's nightmare. I'm on a one lane alley, you know, in this three story buildings, you know, a three man crew. I'm starting shutting hatches because I don't want people to throw grenades down in me. And like, I see this car and like the Apache, like we're playing tag with it. And finally I come around this turn. It's like this T-bone intersection. It's one lane roads. They're all alleys, right? Mm. And I see the car, the dudes bail, right? Right as I come around the corner corner right so i'm like i'm gonna engage it and just disable it right so i go to fire my 50 one round fire and it's it like i'm like you know stop it stop it you hit it with the coax the gunner goes to fire boom one round it jams i'm like oh, man i get one round off he gets one round off i'm like what the heck is going on here i'm like and finally i get a good burst through my 50 right i'm shooting through the trunk of it right yeah shooting and I'm like, all right, I think it's disabled now. I'm like, and then they're like, hey, somebody needs to go check it and see what's in it. And I'm like, yeah. who's they? <laughs> like, I got a three-man tank crew. I'm three blocks from my nearest support, which can't support me if they had to, right? There's no yeah. other patrol on the ground, which is why you had me here. Like, what do you want me to do? So I'm finally like, all right, I tell my gunner. I'm like, hey, buddy, you're up. Go to the <laughs> <trim floor." laughs> 
you walk over here to this car and see what's in it, right? And uh, so he goes over there, right? And I'm covering him at this time, right? And uh, I remember like some dude is like low crawling above me. Like, I don't know what he's trying to do, right? So I just shoot at the guy, right? I don't know if I hit him. I don't know what happens. I shoot at him. I never see him again, right? I'm like, we got to get out of here. Um, He goes and he can't, I'm, he can't get it open. I'm like, just shoot the lock off, whatever. We done shot the car. So he backs up and he shoots one round in his M4 jams. And I'm like, there's no weapon on this tank work. Oh <laughs> no, my I'm like, God. what's going on here, right? Yeah. Anyway, so he looks in, he's like, oh, the keys are in it. He goes and opens up the trunk. There's 50 82 millimeter mortar rounds in there, about 10,000 rounds of 7.62 by 54 R linked, and about four tubes of RPG propellant in there. And you can see where my 50 cal API rounds <laughs> were over the top of this cache of mortars in the trunk of this car. Oh my god! Dude. I'm like, there is a god, and he yeah. jammed all our weapons. <laughs> Isn't that wild? Yeah, this is wild, man. And uh, so we sat there in an Overwatch position for uh, oh man, it I don't know, it felt like forever until this infantry platoon finally gets on site. And they're like, hey, what building did those guys run in? And so this was like my John Wayne moment. I got my I got my my full green pickle suit on, my <laughs> my army tanker helmet, you know, it's and I've got my M9 and I jump out and I'm running down the street, you know, and I'm banging on hey, they're in here. And the infantry kicks the door in and goes in. And I was, um we never did find the guys, but God, it, 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 the the action kept going. We go, I go back down. So here's another part another tank platoon comes on site and they're like, Hey, all the cars in that parking lot were part of it. They're like, we need to destroy them. All right. Yes. So, uh, so they're in overwatch. This engineer platoon comes in and they start taking thermite grenades and they start thermiting the cars. Mm -hmm. They come across the radio like, Hey, we're out of thermite grenades. And then you hear the Apache guy. They're like, Hey bro, that's the wrong parking lot. Oh no. <laughs> all these cars in the wrong parking lot. And oh. so the tank, we're like, well, hey, we got this, right? It was another one of my tank platoons. So they just start, and there's another video on YouTube of this. They're just disabling like, vehicles, <laughs> running over cars left and right. You know, we destroyed every car out there. I wonder, um, though, I wonder, though, if those cars had munitions in them that went boom running over them. No, they searched all of them. We oh, ended oh, up, oh. I pictures somewhere um, where they pulled out because they yeah no they went in there and searched those cars before we did that right roger uh, they pulled out all kinds of stuff bunch of uh i just distinctly remember um iranian military rifles right old uh like imagine G3 that three replica stuff um but here's another divine intervention moment we're getting ready to pull off site right there were three dudes in the car that the apache lit up like just wasted two of them the one guy who was up under the dash where you wouldn't think you would find a human he had like big froed hair he had burn marks through his hair right Round. Yeah. not a scratch on his body right and his buddies were just obliterated um Anyways, we're going to take him to the, the D-Hot at that point, and we start pulling off site, right? Get a flank shot from an RPG on a, on a Bradley. It just barely misses it. We action up. I go back hot on my weapons, you know, a, kind of a quick little action, right? And then we get back on the road, right? And at this point, the infantry platoon's leading. My little ad hoc headquarters platoon is behind them. I'm leading my two Bradleys. And I'm looking in the back of this Bradley fighting vehicle, right? And I look over, I'm like, okay, my weapons are still hot, right? Like I just came off this action. 
excuse me. So I'm like, let me put them back safe. But before I do it, I'm like, I need to reverse it, right? Just because I, it was facing forward, it was facing the Bradley, I didn't like it. So I traverse my 50 cal over and I go to flip it on electric safe. I flip it on electric safe, it just starts running. I'm like, what the heck? And I flip it back onto fire and it stops. And everybody's like, what's that? And I'm like, I just had a weapons malfunction. Like this thing, something's wrong with it. So I reach up and I put it on mechanical safe. And I look out my window and all those rounds had gone into this Iraqi house on the side of the highway. Like I could see, it was like in a movie, right? It blew out all the glass. There was a TV in there that had like static, you know, in it and a hole in it. And it was like mm. of like phosphorus burning on the wall. There was a car and a carport that was now on fire. And I'm like, oh my effing goodness. Like I felt terrible about that. And everybody thought I had some kind of, everybody thought it was me, right? That I had had some weapons malfunction. I'm like mortified. I'm like, no, I had the heck. No, I didn't, you know? Yeah. And so um, nothing ever really came of it until we, took it like they were doing our, our maintenance day later that week. And my gunner was like, Hey, no kidding. Every time you flipped it to fire, it would drop the solenoid on the 50. I'm like, oh, that's huh. a pretty deadly malfunction right there. But another example, good thing you traversed. I'm like, I'm like, I don't know why I, I just, I felt like traversing before I threw it on safe and thank God I did. Cause I mean, that thing would have dumped about 10 rounds right to the back of that Bradley full of infantrymen. And I, well, man, I wouldn't want that on my soul. No, man, that'd been horrible. Might have been war. War is weird, man. Yeah. Yeah, war is weird. So that's your first, you know, sizable engagement outside of smaller skirmishes, like you said. Then you're going to take a R&R. You're going home. You're to, or, yeah, you're home. Uh, you marry your wife, and you come back. Now, how long were you home? Uh, R&R was like 14, 15 days, something like that. I think it was probably like 25 by the time you get over being stuck in Kuwait. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. I spent like three or four days on each end just laying in a, laying in some rack waiting on a flight. Yeah, no, but that's right. 14, 14, 15 days that they give you in country once you land. Okay, so in that 14 or 15 days, did fights like that continue happening? We did. It was really weird. Um, yeah, it was starting to escalate. And yeah. you may or may not remember this. I remember it, but I don't, there was a early 07, there was a chlorine bomb that went off on an American patrol. And that was one of our platoons. And I remember oh. I was in Germany. I was in my wife's apartment in Bayreuth, Germany, watching CNN World because it was the only English speaking news station. And they were talking about a chlorine bomb going off on units. And I wrote, like, I was texting my buddy or emailing my buddy back on the line. And he's like, yeah, that was, that was third platoon, you know, all this stuff. And it was some kind of makeshift bomb. It didn't really do anything but make their eyes burn a little bit. But, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so things were picking up, right? And so I'm sitting over there, like, you know, we were already starting to take some casualties. Um, my particular company was very blessed. We had a, a very high um, wounded rate, but because we were in armor, um, we mostly survived. Our infantrymen that were attached, attached to us um, took some casualties under our flag, right? Under our guide on, and that, that was pretty rough. And they were really good friends of mine as well. Um, but, you know, for the most part, we were kind of blessed in that point. But, you know, my parent battalion and as well as the infantry battalions around us were already starting to take some casualties and some friends of mine had already been from the unit had already been killed um ross mcginnis had already done his action that led him up to getting the uh the medal of honor so yeah. um 
by the time I got back to the unit, we had shut down because all of that shutting down OP San Juan and opening up Fob Falcon or Cop Norris, excuse me, um, had happened while I was in R and R. And so what we did is when we opened our combat outpost, we went up and took over a barracks building in an Iraqi national police um, compound in the city, um, and we put our company in there, our mm -hmm. mechanized there, and, and worked out of that. Uh, for a while and so when i got back i fell in on that and i was the xo right so i had to pick up continuing the logistics of you know continuing fortifying that area there uh, right. and then running patrols out of it but also around that time shortly afterwards right like the surge hit and um so here's another part right like we thought we were delayed indefinitely in june right so we didn't even know we were going to deploy so when they did deploy us, they're like, you're on your original order. So we're like, man, we're only going to have like an eight month long deployment. And then at some point they're like, no, you're extended. It's got to be at least a year. You're like, okay, we're extended again. Right. Mm. And so we're coming up on that year mark. Right. We're getting ready. They're like, Hey, you know, we're getting, we're, we're testing all of our containers for seaworthiness. Right. It was yeah, we're yeah. pulling everything. Now, I've never seen a group of soldiers so happy on <laughs> X's container. They're like, oh, we're getting yeah. ready to go home, oh, right? Yeah. And at the exact same moment in time, like Rumsfeld gets on and announces the surge and 15-month-long deployments, right? And so the inspector that was supposed to come inspect our containers, like, never showed up. And we're all standing around. Everybody's, like, smoking and joking and... And like the uh, the guy man in the radio and the uh, the CP comes out. He's like, "Hey guys, we're extended again, fifteen oh, months this time." Morale crashed. <laughs> likewise, I had never seen a sadder group of soldiers put <laughs> stuff back in the container. It was yeah, so defeating, right? And that that's about the time they put a uh, Fourth Brigade First Infantry Division that they had recently stood up. Um, they brought them in and, and took over our area. And then we, we fell up take home to them at that point. And that's when we grew from a battalion size AO to a brigade size AO in the same footprint. Um, and that's when really the spring offensive of 07 kicked off, right? Yep. Cause the enemy started pushing back a lot as well. And I remember, I remember it was like apocalypse now, right? There's that scene where he's like in the trenches and there's just flares going off everywhere. and People are just kind of doing their own thing. I remember walking to the DFAC one night and just miles and miles of trucks bringing equipment in or just coming in, yeah. right? And flares are over the city, dust is everywhere. Mortars and katushas are coming in trying to disrupt us. And it was just like, whatever, man, I'm just going to walk to the DFAC. Just trying to go. <laughs> really weird eerie memory it is dude when i think back about some of that th stuff too you just it's like you're normal for there so you don't register it as that you just register as my normal i'm hungry i need to go get something i need gear whatever it is i'm just gonna go do it yeah man that's wild and so the offensive when we get into that a little bit um how does that change your your operational tempo like your op tempo and your environment does that change much it does. It absolutely does. You know, we still stayed on um, the uh, the rotations, but, you know, now instead of working out of uh, a big fob, you know, we now had a combat outpost. So a platoon had to stay on cycle there to actually man that mm -hmm. and run patrols. Um, and then, you know, like I said, a brigade came in, they gave us even more firepower. So we yeah. ended up getting light infantry platoon um, from those guys who they gave them trucks and we were motorized infantry at that point. So, we had a tank platoon, a mech infantry platoon that had Bradley's, uh, a mortar platoon um, that was 
motor infantry, and then a light infantry platoon that was motor infantry, plus our headquarters platoon, which was also doing supplemental patrols as well. So that was about our combat power at its height during that. That's pretty that, stacked up at that at that level. It was pretty good. Yeah, we had we had some, you know, we had some combat power between the tanks and the Bradleys. And I tell you what, during that time too, when we first got into country, it was very taboo to fire your main gun, right? I mean, they're just really main gun of a tank really is designed to kill tanks. The mission of a tank is to fight tanks, right? And so we were really kind of learning how to use it in more of an infantry support role in an urban environment. And around that same time uh, that the surge hit, they also gave us the canister rounds for the first time, mm -hmm. which are big, like shotgun shells, 120 millimeter shotgun shells uh, for the main gun round. But what it did is it gave us the ability to really engage troop targets at that point without something so big, you know, like a heat round that would just go through buildings and houses, right? Mm -hmm. So it became a little less taboo to fire the main gun. And at one point we actually got, I don't want to say weapons free on it, but it was, we got some pretty loose guidance on how we could employ the can rounds and firefights. And so what's the range on those, on those rounds? Oh, don't quote me. And there's going to be a bunch of master gunners that like heads explode when I say this, but I want to say it's like, <laughs> nothing meters. like how long? So, like it's, so it's pretty short range. And again, don't quote me on it, but I want to say it's like 1,800 ish ball bearings, you know? So I probably got a book over here that has it. Yeah. In but it. what range again? Spam mail me, please. <laughs> what, what range again though? How far can you hit somebody? I want to say about 500 meters. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah so it's dope. just a big shotgun. It's a big shotgun. Yeah. Yeah, I like that too. I've never seen that one. Um, did you ever fire any main main rounds, main take up rounds? Me personally in Iraq, no, I didn't, but my unit did. Absolutely. Yeah. So the first time we fired one, uh, my commander was on R and R. It was right after, shortly after we had gotten back. I had gotten acclimated. The new brigade came in. We became take com to them, and my commander goes on R and R. Right. Well, while he's gone, the new brigade commander is out doing his little battlefield tour and is coming to our combat outpost, and I have to greet him and show him all the great and wonderful things we're doing for the United States. <laughs> and uh, so as he's coming, right, like we're in contact because this is the point where like we're starting to get in contact every single day now, yeah. right? Like it's, almost all of our patrols are coming into some form of contact. Well, this patrol in particular gets in this pretty big run and gun battle down on the south end of our our area, which was more of a Sunni dominated area. You know, we we're fighting a whole bunch of Al Qaeda fighters down there. And um, anyways, uh one of the platoon or one of the uh, tank commanders, a sergeant or an NCO, uh, I think it was staff sergeant at the time, that he uh, he let one of the can rounds fly without getting any kind of permission, right? And here I am, you know, the XO who's in command of the company because my commander's on R and R, and the brigade commander is coming who I've never met. You know, <laughs> now I have to explain why an NCO fired a main gun round without permission. And it was just like, what am I going to do? Well, anyways, the patrol comes in right before the commander comes, right? And they get out and they've got all this equipment and they lay it out in front of the, the cop entrance, right? Like it was like bandoleras, you know, that had poles and just bloody, I mean, uniforms that were all bloody and AK that was just bent in half and everything. Like all this stuff just laid out with blood and holes all in it. They're like, hey, look at what we did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm flipping out. I'm like, are you serious? Like the brigade commander's coming. Like you're going to get me fired. You know, I'm like, anyways, the guy shows up. The brigade probably commander, loved it, right? Absolutely. 
I can't remember his name for to save my life. And I'm like nervous and he gets out and I salute, I welcome him. I walk him up to the door where all this bloody mangled equipment's laying. <laughs> and he's like, what's this? And I'm like, sir, this is enemy equipment. We just got in a firefight down here. Uh, we actually just fired the main gun, the new can round, you know, so I sold it like a salesman, you know, yeah, yeah. And, uh, this is the battle damage of it. You know, you can see all the holes from the ball barons and I'm just waiting for him to nuke me and stuff. <laughs> at it. Cool. And walks in and never good shit. <laughs> like, oh, God, thank goodness. Yeah, dude, that's good though. That's good shit right there. <laughs> yeah. This is uh, this is what your combat prowess has yielded, fine gentlemen. Would you like some coffee? <laughs> it's oh, cold. It's, uh, it's all your pitch, right? It's your sales pitch. Like, yeah, yeah, we fired the man, but look how cool and bloody it is. Yeah, yeah. Look how look how good it did. That's dope. How many people were they engaging? Just one or? A handful oh, of them I down there? No, it was terrible. In that particular firefight, it was, if I remember, I, I think he fired it at a group of somewhere between four to six, if I remember correctly, that had was running across a road when he happened to be covering it with the gun. Bold Eight. move, Cotton. Eight. Yes. Bold, bold move. Yeah, dude, that's like, what? That's like a claymore that goes way further. And concentrated. And concentrated. Yeah, dude, not cool for them. Got a good spread, yeah. Okay, so t take me through. Um, did you ever have uh, gunfights where you were like, uh, I don't know how this is going to pan out? Like, did you ever have anything like that? Um, I mean, I know you have a tank, so. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I felt like we had the pretty good upper hand in most of the ones I was in, right? You know, and again, I was the XO, right? So I wasn't out there running and gunning every single day, right? I mean, I was on patrols. I definitely got in some fights. I definitely led some patrols that got in some fights and all. But, you know, like the real credit would go to the NCOs and even the platoon leaders that were sure. out there doing the daily patrols. Getting the grind on. <laughs> About most of the fights that we were in you know I, I think our biggest threat at the time were were ieds mm -hmm. right like mm -hmm. that was the biggest threat and for us it was the efp mm -hmm. um and the tank even had a great survivability on it we got hit by a lot of efps we got hit by a lot of ieds in the tanks you know i coded out four tanks to main battle damage i mean did i say that right yeah to battle damage um we had you know, if I was spitballing, probably about 50% wounded in action in the company. But our survivability rate was very high because the armor provided us so much protection. Yeah. Um, and so we were actually pretty fortunate at that time and space to have that, you know, where our infantry brothers weren't. Um, mm -hmm. The ones in the Bradley fared fairly well, um, but the guys in the gun trucks were, they were dying truck crews at a time around. You're us. talking about because of IEDs? Yeah. IEDs. Yeah. either deep buried or uh um efps and so with our area of operations uh we had almost a no man's land right down the middle of our of our area where our combat outpost was in a predominantly shia area uh, which was loaded down with the jay shamadi militia mm -hmm. and the south side of our ao was all Sunni, uh, which okay. was loaded down by fighters now they were fighting each other and they were fighting us mm -hmm. so it was like a it was a pretty good little three-way fight there for a while. Matter of fact, our first couple of uh, months in country, most of what we did was just police up dead bodies from where they were killing each other. We found some really 
really nasty stuff. We had some canal systems on the outside of town, um, which I can talk a little bit more about some incidents that were on CNN. Um, but, um, you know, we would find a lot of bodies out there. Like they would go in the Jay Shamadi or the Al Qaeda would go in they would get these business owners. They would tie them up and torture them. I mean, we would find them where they would take drills and just drill holes in their legs and their arms and just finally finish them off by drilling through their heads or X shoot them in the back of the head. You know, we were just policing up a lot of bodies from sectarian violence for the first part of our deployment. Yeah, and that's, but, I mean, anybody can say what they want, but that kind of carnage takes a toll on on just about everybody that comes, comes in contact with it. And it's not so much like you did, you don't have to do the killing. If you come up on scenes like that, they will stay with you. They will do something to you. You're maybe sometimes, you know, uh, for the first time seeing the effects of what one man will and can do to another man. And, and a lot of times that can be shocking, yeah. And um, how did your um, how did you handle your junior Marines in situations like that? Because if you're running around with a bunch of 18 year old kids um, and 19 year old kids and, and men, I'm not saying kids, but these these guys are young and and guys that see that for the first time that can that can do something. How did you keep that in check? Um, you know, for me personally, I didn't have a lot of that. Right. Just being the XO. Right. Because the guys that were out there on patrols, I mean, they had their. You know, they had their um, their tank commanders, you know, you know, uh, section sergeants, you know, we, you know, squad leader, what you guys would call them, but section mm-hmm. sergeant, sergeants or their platoon leader that kind of dealt with that a little bit more and more. And so I was kind of in a weird spot as the XO. And you've seen it like the XO is just kind of floats around, right? Like nobody really reports to him, but he's got a little <laughs> bit of pop, a lot of maneuverability, you know, it's probably, it's really kind of a dangerous place to be, right? Like it's kind of yeah. fun, but um, so I didn't, you know, there were... I had guys in my my company that um, I never had to deal with specifically what you're asking, right? But I do. Oh, that's know, great. That's great. Yeah, um, I did have guys that were even seasoned guys, right? Like uh, sergeants and sergeants first class or uh, staff sergeants, you know, who were um, in my headquarters platoon that worked for me. That you know, we took some casualties and, it, and they took it pretty hard because they were their friends, you know. Mm-hmm. And I remember having to comfort them a little bit, you know, um, cause they would just kind of break down. You know, I remember watching a guy one time, we got word that, uh, our parent battalion in Ramadi had, uh, taken some casualties and it was a really good friend of my gunner. And, uh, we came in off a of patrol. He was all, we were just happy high five. And we got that news and he just hit his knees, you know, and just, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just, what do you do, man? I just, I got down there with him, sat next to him, man, and just let him know I was there for him. You know, I mean, I didn't really know what else to do. I mean, he's got to process that, but I, uh, I just wanted him to know that he wasn't alone. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I had to do it a couple times in, uh, in 10 in my deployment. It was, um, you know, one time it was my point, man. I, I think, uh, quite, quite certainly that that was the, f- I know it was his first combat action, but it's probably the first dead body scene. And, um, and like he was the one that picked this kid up from SIF just a few weeks before he deployed. He was a combat fill out of SOI. And, you know, it just, you know, you walk up on that and he got riddled. He got hit with um he got hit with some seven six two machine gun, you know, Soviet Soviet block style. And uh he was he, he was just kinda laid out. He didn't look bad, but he was gone. He had expired by the time my squad got on site to try to, you know, help. And um and and that's difficult, um, especially if it's your friend, especially if you know them, you know, and then you got to, as a leader, you got to grab a hold of them and say, hey, you can't engage with blurry eyes, bro. Like, 
we need to you need to you need to get out of that and we could think about that later and, and, and have our emotions about it. And those are difficult conversations to try to have with somebody. Like you said, what do you say? Um, if it's during the action, during the fight, you say whatever you need to say to manipulate their emotions to get them to back, get back on the gun. And a lot of people um, don't like when I use the word manipulate in leadership situations, but it is not all cherries and, and sunshine. Sometimes you're getting somebody to do in a situation what they do not want to do. And so a lot of people say use the word inspire and it's like, yeah, but still sometimes there's no inspiring happening. Sometimes that you grab the hell a hold of somebody and say, this is where we're at, dude. And if you, if you want to get the hell out of here, you need to, you need to pop right now. And that's manipulating somebody's emotions. That's not so much aspire inspiring. Um, and it does inspire change, but you know, um, those are difficult situations. You know, those are not, uh, it's not easy. It doesn't, I don't think it's supposed to be easy. Right. Um, I've said that on here before, like if all this was just easy, um, there wouldn't be a point in protecting it. I don't think anymore. I think we'd all just lost if, if we can do that. So, um, yeah, so let's get into, uh, let's get into transition a bit. Um, and we don't have to beat the dead horse there. Uh, is there anything else that you want? Actually, no, I do have more questions. The, uh, the canal incident that happened with the CNN, let's get into that. Look it up. It's a uh, killings on the canal. It was uh, kind of that's the same canal system. We had a, a one of our sister infantry platoons um, was accused of taking some um, the the first sergeant and the headquarters platoon sergeant. A couple of the guys were accused of taking some uh, prisoners back there and executing them and throwing them in the canal. And mm. it's actually was all over the news. It was first sergeant Hatley. He actually just got out of uh, Leavenworth um, for that. He never admitted to it. I think they found him guilty. They never found a body. It was really a weird. How does that go down? Thing. I don't have all the facts. Obviously, it was our sister. Uh, Hatley's a really good friend of mine. I actually talked to him on the phone here not long ago. Um, but uh, I don't have all the facts on it. But yeah, they had some prisoners that, from what I heard, this is all speculation, right? Mm -hmm. That Eha wasn't going to accept prisoners because they were full, but these were guys that they had actually like, had, like caught in a firefight. They were in a firefight. They captured these guys. They had, had just taken a bunch of casualties to include um, a sniper hit on a Bradley commander that, um, um, from the same group of guys. And they were just like, yeah, release them. There's nothing you can do. The Dehaw's full. And they're like, we're not going to release them, right? And so the rumor was is that they took them back to the canal and executed them and threw them in the canal. And then I think when NCO later on got in trouble and went to CID about it to try to cover himself, and then it turned into an investigation and uh, guys were convicted of it. Um, they actually flew teams back to Baghdad during the war and went diving in this nasty sewage canal, never could find any bodies or anything and still convicted them of it. Hmm. That's sickening. Um, now at the same time, I don't want us to be barbaric. I don't want people to be animals and I don't want murder, but like, <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know what to say with that. I, I guess, know, I guess like, next yeah, I, time just, just put them down in the firefight and be fucking done with it. Um, yeah. but you're not going to get intelligence that way. But if you're going to go up to the defect and they don't have, uh, space for them, then what? Yeah, what do you do? Turn them loose the and fight them tomorrow. Killed your buddy so he can go fight you tomorrow and maybe kill you. It's a weird situation. I kind of tiptoe around that topic. You know, Hatley was a good friend of mine. I, I consider him a good friend. Like I said, I talked to him not long ago. I 
I believe in him. You know, I have no idea what happened that day. I wasn't there. I don't even really want to speculate. It's kind of a, I agree with you though. I don't like the barbaric side. And, you know, we're going to talk about transition. And one of the big things about me is kind of how I, I put my guns away a little bit, you know, hmm. uh, but yeah, no, it's an interesting little side story there for, for that deployment. Yeah, I mean, that's, um, it's really shitty too. I know there was multiple things from Iraq, um, that had came out, you know, in the times that we were deploying to Iraq. And one of them was, a there was a reporter, you know, uh, with a videographer, um, and it was Fallujah. And what they don't tell in the story was that two days prior, uh, one of the Marines was clearing and dead checking a body and it was booby trapped and boom, he got blown up. And so like three days later, they're in a gunfight and Marines going in and doing dead checks, but he does them with a hammered pair and it got caught on footage. And then boom, that runs up. They're just murdering people and dead checking them with rounds and this, that, and the other thing. And everybody leaves the other stuff out of context. Like, yeah, he just got his friend murdered and his best friend since, you know, however long just got blown into pieces because they dead checked your, your proper way that you want it to happen. And this is war people. Um, and you know, now we see with, with Hamid Karzai international airport incident. And we see with, you know, recently with Hamas and Israel war is mainstreamed. There's a GoPro on every helmet. There's a, there, there's a phone in every hand. And so all of the Americans who've been sheltered from wars off our shores and only looking at it when you want to, it's everywhere now. And, um, maybe count your blessings that it's been off our shores for 20 something years and appreciate the fact that we, you know, we have that in hand as far as, um, at least as far as now is concerned, but yeah, it's scary, man. Um, it's scary the way the world is, um, and has been and goes and beautiful yet chaos, um, all around us. So let's talk about transition. You said you put your guns away a little bit. And if that was part of your transition, I'd like to hear about it. So, yeah, man, I, um, I tell you, I getting out, you know, I met you at Laurel Ridge, right. And there was a lot going on. Is that loud? Nope. My neighbor decided to cut his grass right now. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I hear it like perfectly. So I just, went I can't hear it at all. So yeah, I met you at Laurel Ridge and that was, uh, that was actually a really bad time in my life, right? I don't think anybody would argue that. I mean, nobody, people don't go there because they're having a great day. That's know? right. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot going on there. Um, you asked me a question earlier about like dealing with soldiers, young guys that are seeing combat and death and stuff like that for the first time. And how do you coach, mentor, teach them through that? But let me tell you what, nobody asked the XO how they're doing. Yeah. You know, nobody asked the XO how he's doing or what's going on there. Right. And so in particularly, even with officers in the officer corps in the army that I can speak to can be fairly toxic. Right. And I'm sure the Marine Corps can be the same, but you know, nobody asks you how you're doing, nobody cares, you know, and it's, uh, it, it's pretty toxic. And so I going back to my childhood also, this is the tie in, right. It Where, uh, you know, I'd had a pretty traumatic childhood. Um, my my war experience was kind of bloody. You know, there was a lot of stuff that we, we haven't had time to cover yet. But um, I kind of went on. I went in company command and uh, went on to be a uh, senior tactics instructor, uh, cavalry troop commander. And everything just kind of came tumbling down on me, right? I had a bad back. In 2010, I, uh, I had a back surgery. L4, L5 fusion, you know, to kind of save my job in the army right before. I mean, that was coming out of 
Iraq and get, you know, before I went into command, uh, command in the tank company and it worked like it got me, you know, back to where I could take command of a company and be fit to fight again. And then all of a sudden it didn't work. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like I got halfway through my second command and my back started failing again. And I got to where I couldn't walk, you know, I was having to do PT in the morning with all these, uh, army and Marine Corps lieutenants, because I was uh, one of two troops in the army that actually trained Marine Corps tank lieutenants back when you all had tanks, 1812. Yep. And, um, my XO was a Marine Corps captain. And so, um, you know, I'm out here running with these guys. They're fresh out of college, you know, every morning. And here I am post back surgery. And, you know, it was hurting. I would have to lay in my command post for like an hour every morning to get my back back straight. And I just had a lot of stuff. I wasn't processing. I compartmentalized a lot of the trauma, a lot of the war trauma, and a lot of that trauma we mentioned from childhood earlier. And it all came crashing down on me. Um, one mistake, in my opinion, that I made was going to Fort Benning, which was an hour and a half from where my family lived. And so I was kind of caught up in a lot of family trauma at the time, or drama, if you will. And then my dad died also during that time. He died right after you and I first met. And so it was just this big coming apart on my end, right? Like it just, my whole world came crashing down. I lost my physical health. I wasn't able to keep my job in the army. You know, I started drinking too much, like way too much. Um, and then all that childhood trauma that I had repressed forever started coming out. And I just wasn't in a good spot. And I remember I got up one day and uh, I went, I just, I barely remember it, right? Like I was just sitting in this fog at my command post at my desk. And I just, I said, I can't do this anymore. And I got up and I went to the troop medical center, like down the road. And I said, I need help. I don't even know where to start. And they're like, what? I just, I mental health, I guess. I don't know. Right. Mm -hmm. That's really kind of what started me going to Laurel Ridge and got me there. Um, in the same time, my back continued to fail and I just got to the point where I, I, I could barely walk, right? I could barely walk. Things were going bad. And one of the doctors, you know, recommended Laurel Ridge. Like, hey, we got this great program out there. And so I went out there and I'll talk about that in a minute and all. But, um, man, it was a scary time because, man, all I'd been a soldier since I was 20 years old. You know, <laughs> like I didn't know what else I was going to do. I thought I was going to be an army officer until I retired. I'm an old man living near, you know, shopping at the PX the rest of my life. But, um like this great, like unknown. I'm like, man, my health sucks. I can barely walk. Right. I had some other health issues that were going on. I was depressed as I could be. I was dealing with all this trauma. I was drinking too much. I had no idea what I was going to do in my life. It was the scariest thing in the world. Right. Mm -hmm. And I ended up going to Laurel Ridge uh, where I met you. And I learned, I learned a lot there. I worked on a lot of the combat trauma I had. And then I also worked a lot on that childhood trauma. And I realized that, man, my childhood was pretty shit. <laughs> it was pretty bad, right? Like I, there's some things that went on there that were definitely not normal that I had normalized because it was my childhood. I didn't know any better. Right. And it had played this really negative role on me most of my life. And, um, so anyways, fast forward, um, I got really lucky and I got retired. The, the army was very, very good to me. The government was very good to me in that aspect. I got retired mm -hmm. and um, I got picked up right away by the railroad, by a railroad. Um, so I had a job. I mean, they hired me months before I even got out. And so 
Um, I went straight into it and it took a lot of that stress off because at the time too, I wasn't, I didn't know I was going to get a, you know, meet the criteria to actually, you know, get a pension from the army. Right. So I'm like, what am I going to do? Right. Mm -hmm. So I got that job and I was like, okay, I can keep the lights on. Right. And then every, the cards kind of fell in place with the army there and the VA. And so, um, I moved to Nashville. They moved me up to Nashville, Tennessee. And I, I found myself, and that was around the time my dad died. And my family, who was already toxic on that side, came in there and basically stole all of mine and my sister's inheritance. They stole every dime of it. Um, hmm. And they demonized us in the process of it, you know, because my grandmother has dementia. She had some issues going on. And they just convinced her that we were the worst people in the world and that we were stealing everything. We didn't even live there. They were stealing everything because they actually lived there and blaming us who didn't even live there. And so my grandmother was calling me and telling me how terrible I was. And I'm like, I mean, I was losing my mind. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I've never victimized anybody in my life. I'm like, selfless service. I'm out here serving my country. I'm like a good Christian man. I love everybody. Like, I'm just, I'm falling apart. Like, I might, like when I needed help the most, right? When I needed family, they're stabbing me in the back at the same time, right? And so this was all going on after I left Laurel Ridge and around the time I moved to Nashville. And it was just this very dynamic, very crazy time in my life. And at, at one point, I'm like, everything, what I have to do is take everything that I once held to be true, and I have to flush it. And I have to redefine my life. And I have to redefine the environment around me. And I have to redefine my path. Because I used to think, hey, I'm going to inherit all this land. And I'm going to be, you know, the seventh generation living down. on And I realized that's not true anymore. Right? That's gone. Right. And even if I had it, do I really want that? Because that's also where a lot of my childhood abuse happened. And there's a lot of bad blood down there. And honestly, I never really wanted to live there. And that was kind of a very hard time in my life. And so uh, I actually relapsed into drinking when I moved up to Nashville. I'd sobered up at Laurel Ridge and I realized, hey, look, man, 90 percent of my problems is alcohol. Right. Like I drink too much. Right. And uh, I'm proud to say that now, man, I'm four years sober now. But um you know, I relapsed into drinking and uh, I, when I left Laurel Ridge, I had processed all this trauma, all this war trauma and everything. And I felt really good about it. And I got to Nashville and then I have just this toxic family. My grandmother's calling me and telling me I'm a thief and how bad I am. And I'm like, I've never stole anything in my life. You know, she's telling me how she's moving all of her, my inheritance over to my uncle. And I'm like, what's going on, you know? And then just this, I started, you know, drinking and hanging out again. And then I realized fast forward a few years, all that trauma that I processed at Laurel Ridge was bothering me again. Mm. Like I suddenly was sitting here thinking about all my dead army buddies and all the like blown up people I saw in Iraq and everything. And I'm like, oh, you know, suddenly crying myself to sleep again at night, you know, and I'm like. I took this job. I currently travel about 80% with the job I'm at. So I spend like Monday through Friday in hotels and I was getting these hotels at bars in them. I was sitting at the bar at night, drinking, talking to all the other businessmen, you know, businessmen. And uh, then I'd go up to my room and I'd just bawl my eyes out, you know, all this trauma in my head and everything. And I'm like, man, what's going on here? I thought I processed all this stuff, you know? And so, um, you know, I, I, again, it was, that was about the time where I'm like, man, I've got to really, I've got to change my path, right? Like I've got to make some changes here, you know? And that was when I stopped drinking again, like four years ago. And 
all that trauma went away again. Imagine it was that. kind of funny how that happened, but, um, man, I feel like I veered like a little ADD monkey off topic a little bit there. No, but. it's okay. It's no, it's no problem at all. It's, it's, it, I talked down on alcohol a lot. I, I wasted a lot of years after, after I came home on alcohol and probably, you know, arguably, you know, a couple of years there before just being wide open, young in the Marine Corps, that's what we do. But alcohol is killing, killing the, the war fighting community right now. 20 years, 22 years of war fighting community coming home and we far surpass death, co combat deaths with alcohol deaths back at home. And like, I just want people to know, like, like I try to tell the competitive side of people, like when you kill yourself, whether it's with alcohol, with a gun, with whatever, when you're gone, you did exactly what they wanted you to do 15 years ago. It just took a little longer. And they're going to celebrate the fact that one more of you has gone because of what they did to you or because what you were unable to do for yourself. And, um, and it's tough, but that's the tough love is like, be competitive. You, you're just turning into a, you know, to an enemy killed an, uh, an enemy confirmed kill 15 years post fact. Maybe you did with alcohol, you know, maybe you fucked yourself up with alcohol and lost your mind. Um, but alcohol is absolutely not good. It's not good for PTSD. It's a depressant. It brings out bad memories. Absolutely, dude. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and I'm sure you're the same, man. I mean, just being a Marine and a leader and me being an army and leader, like we, we've had guys in front of us and statistically X number of them are going to die because of something related with alcohol. And I'm seeing it and I'm sure you're seeing it. We just buried a uh, friend of mine, I guess last year or so, drank himself to death, just pickled himself. Like just, you talk about a terrible, painful, agonizing death. I mean, that is the bad way to go. I mean, skin, yeah. eyes, oh, just screaming in pain waiting for it to end but i mean just couldn't get his lips off the bottle and i mean i've seen it happen over and over and over again with guys and you're right the military culture i know the marine corps has got to be the same as the army you know we build it around drinking like hey let's you know the marine corps they pride themselves on being formed in a pub right, right. like or a pub. Yeah. You know? the army's the same we have grogs everywhere we just mix all the nasty liquor together yeah. and see get the drunkest and it's like it always ends badly it always ends badly yeah. it always ends people puking on themselves or fighting or wives mad or you know people crying and then that's one of the biggest things i saw in the military is like one we're all we're all alpha males we're all afraid to ask for help mm -hmm. you know i remember being a tank commander with third id and i was hurting even then although i was just way too busy to hurt and i remember looking around at my ncos my sergeant's first class you know with these combat vests three four deployments under their belts and you know i like you know they're mad and they're having problems with their wives and everything else and i remember thinking i mean like how are they dealing with their trauma and i remember like i remember thinking they can't be they got to be just like me holding it in and just suffering through it you know and, and that belief has never changed i mean fast forward 10 years i still think that's true they're holding it in or you know maybe they've seek, seek help by now but um it's a very toxic culture right and their answer to that is hey drink liquor yeah. go hey no big deal just get a bottle of jack on your way home go hang out with your neighbors have a bonfire get shit face drunk and go do pt in the morning okay well that's not helping anything you're like you said it's a depressant you know i mean it's yeah, and so i did that for years right and it's uh you know in like I hate on alcohol, like between you and I, I hate on alcohol, but you know, my stance, I live in Nashville and it's a party town and I go downtown a lot. I shoot nightlife photography and that's all they do is drink down there. Right. When you don't make friends, when you tell people you don't drink, I don't run around bragging about it to people. And so I tell people like, Oh, I love alcohol, you know, and, and 
I do. I loved alcohol for many years. It was a staple of my my adult life for yeah. many years. You know, that's what I tell myself, right? Just to, you know, I tell other people to get them off my back. I'm just like, I chose not to drink it. And that's really true. Like, I really chose not to, but I have to, I have to balance that kind of well, right? Because like I said, you don't make friends when you tell people you don't drink. People look at you like you got like AIDS or something, you know? And it's just like. Isn't that funny? Isn't that weird to you? It's so weird, right? It's like, hey, yeah, I chose not to drink. Like, look, you're over here, you blew a hundred dollars and you feel like doo-doo tomorrow, right? Like, yeah. what's so fun about that? Yeah, and I, I did the same thing. I shoot photography all the time here in Nashville, which is a fun town. And, you know, you'll see all these girls are dressed to the T. They're beautiful. They're out there. You know, I love taking pictures of them. About 10, 11 o'clock when people start getting really turned, you see those same girls, right? They're on their hands and knees in the middle of that dirty street, throwing up all over themselves, sitting in the corners where I see the bums pee. And I'm like, Girl, you're so beautiful, and you sit here and you poison yourself with this alcohol, and now you're sitting in bumpy, you know, yeah. throwing up yourself, acting like a fool. Like, is yeah, that really man. fun? Yeah, and I mean, at the time, it seemed fun. When I was young, we we're gonna get all, you know, it was like let's get fucked up and you know find some women, and if we can't find the women, we'll we'll get fucked up and we'll go get in a fight like that. That's horrible. Like now, I'm older. I'm like, what? Why? Like, you know, I just don't. I don't understand. And, and, and some of that, we need some of that edge. We need some of those, you know, some of those alpha males, you know, out there holding the line. But uh, with alcohol, man, like you can hold the line without it. Um, and you'll be more lethal and more dangerous because of it, I think, as a Marine, as a soldier. And you put the amount of time into uh, into studying your enemy and your terrain and the, the amount of time I put into partying and going out and uh, drinking and making that a priority, you'll be way better than than we were um expand upon that just for a quick second you know like one i had my own falling apart right like i had to deal with some trauma i had to really deal with my family and i'm still dealing with that you know it still hurts to have all your inheritance stolen and to be demonized for something you didn't do and just betrayed by your family for money right and and that kind of hurts and so you know, I had to take some time over the past several years to really rebuild myself and, and fortify my position on earth and where I'm at and, and define my path. Right. And I kind of stepped out of the spotlight for a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. for a few years back. And, you know, I don't talk about a lot of veteran stuff. You know, mm -hmm. I've hired a lot of veterans. I've, some of the guys I served with in Iraq actually work for me now. I've hired them. But that's about as most as I've done. And I think lately as I as I rebuild myself, as I, as a Phoenix rises from the ashes, if you will, like, I'm like, what message do I want to take to veterans? Right. Because that is a huge, important community for me. I'm a combat veteran. I was a leader of combat veterans. I was a leader in the army. And like, how do I carry that on and still be proud of that and still be of service? You know? And I think, I think that's my message, you know, and as I've sat back over the past few months or year or so and thought about what I can do. And I, th I think it's really that it's just talk about being healthy, mm -hmm. right? It's mm -hmm. being healthy. You know, I've started going to more, you know, VFW events and veteran events, you know, and particularly veterans days parades and stuff around here and uh, getting a lot of attention and I'm enjoying it. And I'm like, well, how do I, how do I expand upon that? How do I be more than just the guy standing in my Calvary Stetson on the side of the road waving at the floats as they go by. Right. Like, mm -hmm. I think it's, it's getting out there talking to veterans and saying, Hey, look, it's okay to have trauma. Look, it's okay to see dead people. You're a soldier. That's what we do, man. Mm -hmm. Right. 
but you can't sit there and poison your mind. You can't like flush it out of your mind. You got to deal with it. Yeah. Deal with it. Every veteran since the man has first thrown a stone has dealt with it, right? You got to process it. You can't run from it, you know, and you no, got to catch you. It'll catch you. Yeah. yeah, man. Well, I think, and that is a beautiful message. I mean, the same same kind of uh, premise as I want to come with this podcast. I want to show you a bunch of people who who did make it out of all of that. Maybe, arguably, more than you know, a lot of my guests more than what most people experience. Period in combat, and that's the ones I want to show because I want to say if if he did more than you, that should give you hope to say if he did all that and he's okay and he's up and he's thriving. Yeah, does he have bad days? He's gonna have bad days. Every guest I had on my show would, would, would openly admit that they've had bad days and still to this day can have bad days. I mean, yesterday I was having, you know, a moment. You know, I got my crew in here and I'm sitting on my couch, you know, falling apart for a minute because, you know, something that I recorded with another person, you know, uh, was cathartic and um, not in a bad way. But like in a happy way, in a good way, feel like we're helping each other. We feel like we're helping people. And uh, yeah, you do a whole career where you're hurting people and taking life, um, and it's almost like uh, inside you to want to help. I, I guess, or at least inside of me, to want to help people as much as you know I hurt people um, in the past. So I get that. I can relate to that. I, that's my message as well. Like we can do this, but we got to do it together. It's not alone with a bottle somewhere uh, where the work is done. So yeah, I love. Well, that. I love your podcast. I love that it's been veteran oriented. I love that it's leadership oriented. I think you do a really neat job with that, man. Oh, I appreciate that, man. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you coming on here and, and you know, getting a little vulnerable and, and talking about this stuff because the, you know, the more of us that are coming out that did, did hit hard and, and did have experiences and did, um, as you say, see the bodies and deal with the bodies and, uh, and even put some of those bodies there, um, the more of us that we can show, hey, there's a vulnerable side. You can get back in touch with your emotions. I think, you know, for me, a lot of it was spiritual. And I don't even want to say religious, but I want to say spiritual. Um, you meet yourself over there. And, and, you know, not everybody likes what they see. Not everybody comes home and is proud of the things that they did. Uh, and that's okay. And you got to take that time to sit back and uh, reevaluate yourself and evaluate your life and where you're at. And then you need to decide where you want to be. Who do you want to become? Where do you want to be? How do you want people to remember you? And um, one thing I know for certain is that anybody you ever cared about, they don't want to remember you pickling yourself in a, in a chair by yourself crying. Uh, they don't They don't want you to um, go get blackout drunk three days a week and then at the end of it, you know, have, have all of your... Um, all of your inhibitions and, and uh, your, uh, your senses dulled and you kill yourself. Uh, because that's happening. Um, that's not what your friends wanted. That's not what the guys that gave your brothers that gave the full measure uh, for you to come back. They want you to be happy, man. They want you to have a family. They want you to raise a family, coach sports, uh, have a positive impact on your community. If they could be yeah. up there seeing that, that's what they want. That's them standing there clapping, you know. So, I mean, we had another one kill himself. A couple months ago, you know, just off Continues. himself. He did all his social media and killed himself. And it's like, why, brother? Like, like talk to somebody, you know? Well, yeah. And, and she, I think if we had the answer to why and we had the intervention answer, you know, maybe, maybe it wouldn't be happening still, but we don't. 
Uh, everybody wants to talk about suicide and how much you can prevent it by watching people's patterns of life and when they give things away or when they take things and when they change. And it's like, you know what? Like at the end of the day, if if a grown-ass human being wants to be done, there's there's not anything you're going to be able to do to stop them, in my opinion. The things that stop them, the way you stop them is before it happens. You talk to them. You get in their head. You let them know that it's okay. You know, you get them professional help if it's that far along. And, um, and, and, and awareness, like you're doing, getting out there talking to them. Like the shows, these podcasts, these people, these speakers, that's what changes it. That's what restores faith that they can get back to a righteous spot. Uh, prior to the, you know them making that decision, I think once that decision's made, it's made. Um, and I think these veteran communities are critical for that. You know, and kind of talking about how I stepped out of not really talking to any, about military at all the past mm-hmm. several years. And you and I were talking about, you know, it's hard to talk about sometimes. I remember being a kid, and my granddad and all his brothers were World War II vets, and um, they would never talk about it. My stepdad, Vietnam vet, would never talk about it. And I could never understand why nobody would ever talk about it, right? Until I got back from Iraq. And I was like, well, I'm going to talk about it. And I would talk about it to like my old frat brothers or college friends or high school friends. And I always ended up upset yeah. because they couldn't understand what I was saying, right? I was sitting there conveying this significantly emotional you know stories and events that a life-altering you know this coming of age kind of stuff and they were just like oh cool bro yeah wow <laughs> like, that's awesome you mean cool you know i just told you like i almost stepped on somebody's eyeball what's cool about that you know and i would be upset you know and then yeah. and i think that was kind of my oh i get it now i get why our granddads and our dads never talked about it right because you don't want like it, it it's painful but on the flip side that was when my stepdad, my granddad had already passed. That was when my stepdad started talking to me about Vietnam, right? When I got back from Iraq yep. and I could talk to him about Iraq and it never bothered me. The same as I'm talking to you about it and it doesn't bother me, right? Because I know that you've lived that life. I know that you understand kind of where I'm coming from. Like we've, we've tread the same ground, right? And I'm okay with that right now. If you were you know, somebody else and I was telling this story, I'd probably walk away and be like, oh man, I, I don't like opening myself up to people like that, yeah, you know, yeah. but veterans, yeah, whatever, man, we, we did the same stuff. I can talk about it. I can laugh about it all day long. And it, it's kind of weird, that phenomenon like that, you know, where veterans can talk to each other and be okay, but I can't talk to anybody else about it. And that's why stuff like your podcast, the VFW and these veteran organizations, I think that's why they're really important is because it gives us some place to uncompartmentalize that those emotions and that information and those experiences and and talk to people and reflect and bounce you know stories off one another and hey make sure am i okay you know yeah yeah. 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 no it's beautiful i'm a i love the vfw um i'm a big i'm a i'm a senior vice uh commander at my post and we're right out the back gate of camp lejeune and we have a lot of younger uh gwa era uh, veterans starting to come, you know, put a pistol range out there. And we try to show them, like, I know a lot of people have to put their guns down and, and kind of get past that. And um, I had to put them down while I was on medication when I was first trying to figure myself out because I, I didn't want to have a mistake, right? Um, but since then, I love shooting still. I always love shooting. I go to the range now, and a lot of people say, oh, you got PTSD. How can you go shoot? Like, fuck off. Like, yeah. going and shooting a paper target doesn't trigger me. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, like are you... 
Like, this is my life. This wasn't my job. This isn't, wasn't a nine to five thing. You know, this was my life. This is part of my life. And that's how I can do it. And do I still have bad days? Sure. But shooting helps me. It's like you sitting down and riffing on a guitar and going out there and getting that aggression out. And, you know, you know, it's therapeutic to a lot of people. And, um, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but well, I might have misspoke it. When I say put my guns down, I don't mean that I, I don't shoot. I definitely love shooting. But I think is more as a... Mindset-wise? Mindset-wise, yeah, yeah. right? Younger me was more, you know... Yeah, because like, you have more guns than anybody like in the country, right? I've got a few. Yeah, you've got the old, well, I lost old armory. Oh, yeah, so, okay, okay. I took them all out on Percy Breeze to show a guy and the boat sank. Yeah, yeah. Terrible. right, correct. As far as anybody else is concerned. No, no, I still love that. I, I think, I think now I, I seek uh, instead of seeking combat, I, I seek beauty in the world. You know, yeah. I try to. I I think in the biggest the biggest way I can express that is I don't really hunt anymore. I used to, I'm avid hunter. I grew up on land. I hunt. I've killed hundreds and hundreds of deers, deers, deer, deers. And I'm just at the point now where I'm just like, man, I don't want to hurt an animal. I would much rather take a picture of it and shoot it with a rifle yeah. you know my son wants to go hunt and i'll take him hunting, you know? no i get that sentiment man when i came home it's the same way now that i still will hunt deer if i need deer meat i still will go hunt elk if i need elk meat i will hunt but but do i do needless like ah, i don't need anything i'm just gonna go see how many i can kill or i'm gonna keep every single fish that i catch regardless if, if i think i'm gonna eat it nope i don't do that anymore and uh and i and i do feel that so i think once you've killed um I hate to say that, but once you've killed a man, once you've killed, once you've been in the ultimate arena and you've done that, you don't have to, you're not proving anything to anybody anymore. You know, I got more deer than you. Okay. You killed more deer. You got a bigger deer. Okay. You know, that's what it's like to me. That's how I liken it. Um, but I do not want to hurt. You know, I want to bring positivity, um, almost every aspect of my life. I want to, to help and bring positive, um, emotions and sensations to people. That's what I want to do and killing a bunch of animals and it doesn't do it you know it doesn't that's just okay now if i can bring a bunch of people food that's a positive thing um but outside of that yeah i feel the same way it was ernest hemingway said uh you know world war war one messed hemingway up a good bit you know things happen and messed him up but he said um there is no killing or there is no hunting like the hunting of grown men and those who have hunted armed men long enough and liked it never cared for anything thereafter i think that's a lot of where we're, where some of our veterans are too some of our hardened guys that are hitting out there they got so attached to that life and it's like what what becomes of it after that and it takes that it takes what you're doing it takes that re-evaluation of self and then identifying um like who you want self to be um and then putting your actions to work as much as your mind is wanting to be that person you know conducting that action plan creating that action plan to get from step a to maybe it's step five thousand to get to where you want to be and it's one percent better every day and making it work um yeah what else you got doesn't really do and that's one thing the veteran community can really do for the veteran the military makes you think that once you're out of the military, you're dead and gone, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing else. They train you that America, the public, corporate America is a very scary place. Like, you know, because they want retention. They want you to stay yeah. in there. And you get these guys that get out of the army. I remember when I got out of the army, I was 35 years old. I felt like an old man, right? 
like I felt like an old man, like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I just just sit around and get old, you know, go shop at the PX, wear my veteran hat, you know? And I'm like, but I really, I felt that way. And I've got buddies that are still in a good buddy of mine. He's a uh, brigade commander right now. We were company commanders at third ID together. And I I meet up with him. Uh, He's from around here. So about every year he'll come into town. And I was talking to him the other night and he just like, he's talking like an old man, like he's 60 or something, you know? He's so curious about what I do, you know, he's so just mysterious, this corporate America life. And I yeah. listen to his stories and because I'm at the point now in the military where I just I, I glorify all of it. It was all just great. You know, yeah, yeah, not, yeah. I forget all the like toxicity and the cold nights on concrete floors. And he's reminding me of. Yeah, this, yeah. <laughs> oh, man, I'm getting like PTSD from like, you know, command and staff meetings right now. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, you know, and he's the same way. He just acts like, hey, old man, like, what are you going to do? Like when he gets out, I'm like, bro, like, dude, you're 35. Got your whole life ahead of you. Now, like you've got your whole life ahead of you, man. Like you can do so many things, right? Like, but I think a lot of veterans are like that. They get out, you know, especially guys that retire, you know, they get their little VFW hat and they just, they'd be for like Settle, settle. You know, I do. Uh, I'm a regional manager now for a big sales organization. I do a lot of customer engagements and I'll go in these people's houses and talk to them, you know, that were veterans, you know, 20 years ago, they got out and haven't done a thing. Since, yeah, you know, like, we got a fixed income from the government and we just have been sitting here for 20 years because we're old and, you know, that's their whole life was their military service. And I'm like, well, that's a big, important thing in your life. Mm-hmm. But like you could have done so much more in the last 20 years too, right? Like, yeah. My uh my platoon commander from Marja, uh, he would say he would say something to the order of if if after it's all done, you come to my graveyard and you look at my headstone or my tombstone and and it has all my accomplishments and the only thing that you read on that is that I was a United States Marine for twenty, whatever, thirty years, let's call it. That's a sad thing. It's a sad thing because you got you got your 18 to 20 years of your retirement and then you had 40 something years that you could have impacted the world around you and been something, whatever you want to be, travel, make impacts and you didn't do it. And so you got to 35 and your best years were behind you. That's sad. That's sad to me. And I had that mindset before, like I get out and like, what do I do now? And I don't even know. And you got to get that out. That's the wrong mindset. It's like, Look how young I got to get out and separate and look at all this time that I have left to make an impact on the world, to leave a footprint. Anything in the world you want to do, it's out there. Anything, you know, but some, I think that's a, I think that's a, I think that's a cultural problem in the military, right? Because they really, my opinion, right? Like they preach that up. Like there is nothing out there. It's scary. You know, stay here. Retention, retention, retention. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least not not the Marine Corps ain't having that problem. You know what I mean? Uh, just thought I'd throw that dig in there. Arm, Army and uh, Army does Army, Navy, like Coast Guard, Army. Air Force, Space Force. Well, everybody else has that problem. The Marines are like, you want incentive? Your incentive is being a Marine. Be, <laughs> be a man. Join the force. <laughs> you're yeah, not, you're not yo. getting anything from us. <laughs> they get kids with with the same approach. They almost got you. <laughs> Oh yeah, just prideful. Yeah. Yep. What? Be a man. Yeah. What? You're not gonna go. <laughs> well, since you'll edit this, he was like, "You, you, you a pussy?" Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Be, yeah. Pussy, you're like a fucking pussy. Get in here, sign this paper. You're not a pussy. Like, yep. Like, well, yeah. Well, that's probably I, a bad I, approach. 
<laughs> Probably a bad approach, but it does work on a lot of them. It does, but it did not work on me. I think I actually laughed at him because I was just like, man, you are aggressive. Like you really thought you had this one in the bag because <laughs> you was counting on this but for one. Bro, he was mad. I'll oh, never sorry. forget. Working overtime away from his family. His wife hates him for the last three years because it's balls to the wall and recruiting duties. Basically a deployment. And he takes his time to come talk to your family so he can get you to MEPS. And he might not get demoted for shit baggery. And what'd you do? You pulled a rug right out from underneath of him. <laughs> I had the camera ready and his buddy in his uniform was ready. And everything. Was like, no. Yeah, wearing blues. Highly likely had to get him detailed, which cost him like 350 bucks to get his medal set. Yeah. All, all for a past. <laughs> all for some little stoner high school kid to bail on him. Yeah, a little punk. <laughs> I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to concert. No, I'm all good, dude. Who was it that you used to play at Laurel Ridge? It had a, such a oh, weird, a man, weird, like a man, weird I name. I played, I remember one time I played uh, Wish You Were Here in front of everybody. Yeah, that was good. You that played, good. You played was, something uh, like Stink Fist or some weird name. Oh, like, I play a lot uh, Ween. Of yeah, you play Ween. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, love Ween. Yeah, that's good shit. I still play a lot of Ween songs. I bet you do. Yeah, that's good. Phenomenal guitarist. Yeah, that was awesome. Well, when you're not two years removed, maybe. Um, I don't know. When I put my mind to it. Yeah, man. Well, man, it's been a while. I think uh, I think we could cut it here. Um, is there anything I missed that you wanted to, that you wanted to talk about? No, man. I think this was a uh, – I mean, shoot, I could sit here and talk to you all day. I know. Long. That's the way I feel, too. <laughs> we'll have to link no, up man. you being in nashville over there man i'm close enough i'm still over here by camp lejeune and i try to make it to um actually i was just in nashville uh but i was working and my wife was in in nashville for work so i just ran down real quick for a dinner and uh, i was a couple hours north of that um doing some other work and um and so i was just there but i do i do mean to make it out there and uh and i'm definitely going to hit you up when i go uh, some beautiful country out there some of my favorite that's a blessing of living in Nashville. You know, I came here kicking and screaming because when I got out of the army, I wanted to go to Atlanta, you know, cause I thought I was going to fall in on all that inheritance. And they sent me to Nashville and I got here and I'm like, I am an idiot. I'm so glad that they sent me here and didn't listen to me. <laughs> cool, yeah. I love that. One of the best parts about it is it is a tourist town. So everybody comes to Nashville. Right. And so since I've been here, I have been able to reconnect with, a lot of people I haven't seen in a while, right? Especially a lot of army guys. Um, I mean, probably four or five times a year, an old army guy, old buddy or somebody will hit me up like, Hey, I'm in Nashville, um, for the night and I'll go downtown. I'll meet them. I'll give them the walking yeah. tour. You know, Cause I knew a lot down there. And, uh, so link up with them. So it's been really rewarding in that aspect. I have a old army buddy of mine who's doing really, really well for himself. I met him and one of his business partners the other night down there and yeah, just give them walking tours and, yeah, man. So if you're in town, I'd love to, I'd love oh, to link dude. up with you. Oh, absolutely, dude. I'll hook up the next time I'm up the over that way. I, I'm definitely going to reach out and uh, reach out and talk. But um, yeah, man, I can't appreciate it. Uh, tell you enough how much I appreciate you taking the time, uh, being you know the vulnerability to come through and talk because I think this message is going to resonate with a lot of guys out there, and um, and and so I appreciate that. But Matt, you got anything for us? Matt Snow, Josh, anything else? No, sir. I appreciate the opportunity to be on here. Yeah, man. All right, man. For choices, not chances, guys. This is Ryan. If you've seen anything that you uh, that you need to post back out there, I ask that you do tag the post, tag the tag the show on on whatever platform you're on, and uh, and share the information out to your to your friends, to your community, to your family. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Choices, not chances, guys. Well, that concludes this episode. 
Thanks for listening to Choices Not Chances podcast. Please share, like, and subscribe wherever you listen or watch our podcast. You can also follow us on social media at Choices Not Chances podcast. Thanks and have a great day. Louisiana Gun Shop, your firearm headquarters, specializing in concealed carry guns, ammo, and training. You can get your Louisiana permit with us. Also, a large selection of AR-15s, or if you are that build-it-yourself type of guy or gal, we have all the parts to build and customize your own AR-15. Glock, Sig, Taurus, Ruger, we have all the brands, both in the store or at louisianagunshop.com. Not too far. You're marking the building. Hit him. Yeah, that's good. That's a good shot. That's plenty. Yeah. Yeah.